0: Alright, let's get our Bibles out and go to Numbers chapter 12. So, now if you just open your Bible to the first book, Genesis, and go four books in, you'll come to Numbers right there in the beginning of your Bible. It's not every day that we uh, look at a text out of Numbers, at least in this form, but it's an excellent place for us to look at this third part of this series, Broken, where we are looking at various ways in which brokenness in our lives in these various areas create or wreak havoc uh, all over our lives, and so we've talked about things like anxiety, and tonight we're going to look at this issue of adjustment needed, which would be our What? Our attitude, that's why there's 25% of the people aren't here. I scared the death out of them this morning. (laughs) They're like, I ain't even coming. I don't know what he's talking about. What needs adjustment is your attitude and my attitude. And so we're going to talk a little bit about attitude. You know, uh, and the thing about uh, having uh, just a common sense, practical discussion, uh, biblical, of course, but about this issue of attitude is uh, complex because this is one of those areas where the Bible has this vast amount of uh, Scripture to speak to this issue. And so you have to really, um, the, the challenge for someone in my position is to take all these various things into consideration and make sure that I'm, I'm putting forth a, the, the best, most well-rounded understanding of what we're uh, what, what God would have to say to us about this issue of our attitude. Listen, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big issue. It's a difficult issue. The Bible doesn't pretend that it's going to be easy uh, in any way, and I think that's why the, the Scripture speaks so much to it, uh, because God is uh, just cluing us into the fact that He realizes it's going to be a big struggle for us. And So let's pray and ask Him to help us, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. God, we ask you now that as our children are being ministered to and taught and instructed, Lord, uh, Father God, that you would just bless them and uh, fill their hearts with uh, your word. And Lord God, prepare them for uh, the great things that you have in store for them in the future. And Lord, help us to be discipled and uh, instructed through your word as we're here, Father. Thank you for... This time, we pray that you give us ears to hear, and that our hearts would be open to receive what you have to say to us in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. You know the the best way to to adjust your attitude is to the quickest, simplest, most practical way is just is just to change your perspective. That's part of the problem that we have is we get hung up in a in our own perspective of things, and that's what breaks down and causes us to sort of careen off this cliff of having a a wrong attitude or sometimes the Bible calls it a wrong spirit. Uh, An example of that is that I often say to people, uh, you know, I preached a sermon some years ago uh, about a defining moment in my life where uh, I spent 12 hours with a young man in our church uh, who was having a major... Uh, spinal surgery at Children's Hospital, and so as I sat there in Children's Hospital, I began to walk the halls of Children's Hospital, and it just absolutely wrecked me. It just wrecked me. I just realized how petty I am. I realized how foolish and stupid and ignorant I felt. I honestly felt like jumping out the window. I honestly felt like diving right out the window. After seeing the Suffering and just the, the magnitude of the struggles that so many uh, people are facing, these little tiny children. It just absolutely, I just, I cried for days. It totally adjusted my perspective. And I've told people I don't know how many times who are whining and complaining and bemoaning all their problems to me, I say, why don't, here's your homework, get in the car. Take your spouse, drive to New Orleans, and go up to the pediatric cancer ward and just spend a few hours and then come back and we'll talk about this. It'll change your perspective forever. You know, there's a book in our library. It's called uh, Stories and Meditation from Webb's Mommy. It's a journey through disability. It's a book uh, written by a lady named Tammy Smith who's actually from... Van Cleave, and what first drew my attention to this is that it's Billy Summerall, in fact the lady who does the uh, library for us on uh, Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. It's it's her sister who wrote this book, and uh, she has a son who's severely handicapped, and I think maybe we were having a conversation uh, at some point in the past about the fact that I have a younger brother that's severely handicapped, and so it Uh, greatly impacted my life and understanding about, uh, you know, just the struggle that's within that. So she gave me this book some time ago. I put a copy of it in the library to be a blessing to those who might be facing similar things. But she, there's a point in this book where uh, Webb, who's her oldest child, she has two uh, younger daughters that are completely uh, healthy. And um, there's sort of a rule in their household that whenever they're... To whenever they're the, at this point in time, I think the girls were like teenagers, and you know how that goes when you have teenagers. I mean, my goodness, everything's the end of the world. You know, if you have a bad hair day, it's the end of the world. So I don't know. But they have a rule in their house where whenever one of the girls would complain and say it's not fair or be critical of something, um, they would say, Well, I want you to go in Webb's room and tell him it's not fair. And suddenly, it's not fair was never spoken in their house ever again. Nobody says it's not fair anymore because you can't really walk into Webb's room and look at him all crumpled up in his chair and say, you know Webb, let me tell you about what's not fair. So you see, that's really the issue with regards to Attitude. You know, if you think about, for example, the first sermon Jesus preached on earth is the Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus starts with these beatitudes. They're attitudes that ought to be in our lives. Now, it's interesting that that's where he starts. I mean, I remember... Sitting some years ago and studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and thinking to myself that for all of eternity, everything has waited for this moment when the Son of God arrives on earth. And now it's the inaugural sermon, the, the first words that He's going to preach to humanity and their Beatitudes. The first one, blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this issue of being poor in spirit is the opposite of being self-sufficient. To be poor in spirit is that we should have an attitude of understanding that we are uh, teachable, that we are in need of God. Or blessed are those who mourn, that the Bible Speaks of an attitude of those who would mourn over their sin, or blessed are the meek. Remember, we talked about meekness when we were talking about the fruit of the spirit, and we talked about how meekness is really—it's not weakness. It's the opposite of being out of control. That—that that the word really uh, is best described by uh, this—a uh, horse that is bridled, that has this immense power. But the power is under control. So it's not not an out of control power. But it's a harnessed power. That's the attitude that we should have. We should have an attitude of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, it would be the opposite of being self-righteous. That we wouldn't want our own righteousness. But we would want God's righteousness. Or blessed are those who are merciful. Who would have a kind and forgiving spirit towards others. Or blessed are the pure in heart who desire to be Righteous in all their ways, they would have an attitude of of righteousness. In other words, your attitude would be one that would promote and desire the right thing in situations, not the shortcut or the easy way or the, you know, whatever seems to be popular or hip or whatever the case may be. But what is right or blessed are the peacemakers. That we would have an attitude that promotes peace, but not just peace, like, you know, that just shuts their mouth up. Uh, And doesn't speak the truth so that we just can have peace. But shalom, the messianic peace, the peace, the biblical peace that comes from, um, you know, the rightness and walking in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible is very, very definitive and instructive with regards to attitudes and, you know, it's hard for us because we're, we live in a world that as we saw two weeks ago when I talked about anxiety, it's really out of control. I mean, there's so few things that you and I actually have control over in this world. But most of the things in our world, no matter how hard we try, are utterly and completely out of our control. But what we can control is ourselves. That every Christian is commanded to be a person of self-control it's an attribute of Christ it's a fruit of the spirit self-control and that we're commanded to have self-control now we wouldn't be commanded to have it if we couldn't do it and so suffices to say that we're able to do it as we walk in the spirit and we operate in the power of God but it doesn't make it easy you know What is the problem with self-control? What's the challenge with being a person of self-control? Where does your self-control and my self-control break down? I mean, yes, it breaks down in a lot of ways. It breaks down with Oreo cookies. I mean, it breaks down with, uh, you know, lots of small things. But really, when you really hone it in, where does self-control break apart. It's with people. I mean, nothing can push your buttons and my buttons like other people. You know, I I could be a person of great self-control if I just lived alone. You start thinking about Uh, You know, on my own deserted island, you start thinking about self-control for very long, and pretty soon, you know, the movie Castaway looks like a dream come true, and you just start thinking, man, if there's no one to bug me and no one to harass me and no one to annoy me, and everywhere you go, there's some challenge to self-control. Now, I don't know what those are for you, the big, you know, hot-button issues, but I know that the ones that are really um, detrimental are the ones that are with regards to people. Because... It, it not only elicits the the greatest, most impassioned, wrong response, but it does the most damage. And it can just be the silly things, you know like you're you know I think for me, I just think about the the things that already have me uneasy. you know when i when I go in the grocery store, I'm already uneasy i't I don't, I don't want to be there. So when I'm already uneasy and I'm already there and then I pull up to the express lane that has 20 items or less, and the person in front of me has 6,000 items in their buggy. It's hard not to get annoyed at that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't recall ever getting annoyed with my own driving. It's only everyone else's driving that's (laughs) annoying to me. Whenever I have the road to myself, everything's great. You know, I think about where I've seen people really lose their cool a lot. You know, I, I always tell you how I enjoy people watching. And uh, a few months ago, I spent a couple hours sitting in the DMV waiting to renew my driver's license. Whoo! You can do a study on self control in that joint, let me tell you. People lose it. Or I think about all the years that I had small children, and all the teachers will so appreciate this. What is the deal with the car rider line? Like, is everyone demon possessed in the car rider line? Like, what? You know, these moms just become like raging psychopaths in the car rider line trying to pick up their kids. It's crazy. You don't want to get mixed up in the car rider line. I mean, I've seen crazy things happen. So the Bible says things like in Romans chapter 12, there's a passage that says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this passage of scripture, but just look at it for a second. First of all, it's as if Paul's saying, Well, it's not always going to be possible. I mean, there's sometimes it's not possible. But if it is possible, it's important and you want to do this, but as much as it depends on you, you see, the, the the command is for you to be a person who has a right attitude. You can't control other people. You can only control you, but we all have to take responsibility for ourselves with regards to our Attitude, and so you know uh, what? Maybe this seems so far as a as a small issue. Maybe you're thinking, "Well, I don't know. I mean, I just don't see this as something that's a great detriment to many people in their uh, journey of faith and their walk with Christ." And I would say, "Oh, contraire! It is a huge detriment." to a number of people in a multitude of ways that this is a great issue it is a reason why many people uh live fruitless dry barren spiritual lives because they're out of fellowship with god and they they don't know and they uh or they don't want to know why. And they scratch and claw in their own strength trying to uh, achieve things. Always wondering why things never work. And all along the problem is, is that their, their fellowship with God is hindered. Because they have a sinful wrong attitude. And it destroys so many things so many times. You know if, if you want to finish this Christian race strong. If you want to be a person who perseveres to the end and has impact uh, for a great length of time, you might want to take serious consideration about your attitude because it will uh, it, it has derailed many a, a person who is striving to uh, live for Christ in a lot of ways but has not um, has just not addressed this issue of attitude and it's caused a lot of problems. You know, I was thinking about the people that are in my life. I have a lot of people, thankfully, in my life who have wonderful attitudes, who really have a, uh, just a, a wonderful disposition. Their attitude uh, tends to just be right and good and, and kind. You know, Rod is that way. Uh, he, he... Even, even when, when he ch- tries to say something... Um, that could be critical about someone. He retracts it and says, This happened. He walked in my office this morning. This happened this morning before service. He walked in my office and we were having a conversation. And then he started to say something that could be critical, and then he retracted it and said, Well, maybe I'm overthinking it. Which is, he walked out and I thought I just smiled, because he does that all the time. He he is Someone who just has a good attitude. My wife is the same way. My wife has a very stable, consistent, good attitude. Now, don't get all puffed up because Angela knows all the other things that aren't good. Right. I notice she's smiling right now like, that's one, but there's 20 over here that we could work on. But anyway, but my wife has a good attitude. And she um, will just be... Uh, I think she embodies for me meekness in a, in a very... Wonderful way. I see that attribute in her uh, in a lot of ways. You know, the Scripture says about, uh, in 1 Peter 3, really, Peter's talking about a a godly woman's attitude. And here's what the Scripture says in verse 4. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And I think that what happens is sometimes you might overlook uh, gentleness and meekness as weakness, which would be a mistake, Uh, you know, while we were on vacation. I saw this illustrated in a very clear way. We were uh, away in uh, Colorado, and we were snow skiing, and uh, Lisa was uh, sitting down having a, a cup of coffee with one of the ladies who was there with us and so they were sitting there having a cup of coffee and I was way you know on the other side you know a hundred yards away sitting there talking to some guys and apparently unbeknownst to me I didn't know any of this was going on this guy comes along and he is using foul language and very loudly and, and boisterously and my little meek and mild wife who would you know rarely ever say a cross word about anyone is totally non-confrontational but she took offense and she jumped up and walked over there to that man and she said sir I don't appreciate the words that you're using and there's children around here which you know good thing they weren't her children because mama bear go crazy but anyway she said there's children around here and you need to watch your mouth Well, he then proceeded to curse her completely out. And when I'm way over here, I don't know any of this is going on, and I'm talking, 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 and I look up, and I see my wife and some guy surrounded by security officers, and I jumped up and I go running over there to see what's going on. And she is utterly unwilling to, I mean, she ain't backing down. She's, she said, and he just kept on, and she just stood there, and he put his face right here, and she turned to the side and said, uh, saw this employee walking by and said, is there some security here that could help me? And whew, all this security comes, and of course, he takes off running, and all this stuff ensues. And the lady who was sitting there talking to Lisa, when I got over there, and I was going, what happened? This is what she said. She goes, wow. I said, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> you know, if you... Uh, she has a way of responding with power, but she stays under control. You see, now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Had I have been five or ten feet away and that would have happened, meekness probably wouldn't have been you wouldn't have heard this story. (laughs) So you see, I mean, and that's a deficiency in me. As opposed to her and her attitude. So I want you to think a little bit about how, before we get into this text in Numbers chapter 12, how do you react when people... Don't act the way you think they ought to act. See, I'm thinking about all these issues that 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 create these these attitude problems that we have. These these attitudes of negativity, these attitudes of criticism, or these attitudes of complaining. Like, where? Do, what is the what is behind this? I mean, if you think about, there's three examples. You see for example, a negative attitude, an attitude that's always negative about everything. It relates to your perceptions. That, you know, it's sort of the proverbial, always seeing the glass half empty. And so everything is always perceived negatively and it has these horrible repercussions on you as well as everyone around you. Or this complaining attitude. If you're a complaining person, well, it's relating to... Situations, complainers are complaining primarily about situations. If you have a critical attitude, an attitude of criticism comes from, it relates to people. So so criticism is to people, and complaining is to situations, and negativity is to perceptions. And so you can think about, you know, whatever the deficiency is in a person's attitude. I mean, I certainly could, you know, we could make a list a hundred things long, but we'd never get anywhere so we just have to stop and then just ask ourselves questions like well how do we how do we respond when people don't act the way we think they ought to act what's our what's our general mode of uh, dealing with those situations do we tend to be understanding do we tend to be patient or do we tend to be frustrated and then begin to affix blame or whatever the case may be you know you're and if you're sort of maybe thinking to yourself, I mean, I know the tendency to be you're probably thinking of someone else, but don't do that. Think of yourself. Don't think of anyone else. I mean, you can do that later. The first thing you want to do is address your own attitude, and and think about if you're like, well, I'm not really sure what my attitude is. Well, your attitude is going to be the the trueness of your attitude is going to be found in your, not in your actions, but in your reactions. You see, when I have time to think about something, well, then I'm almost always going to respond rightly. It's when you sneak attack me. It's when I don't have time to think about what I'm going to do or how I'm going to... Then the truth comes out, you see. And so that's where... So when you react to something, what is it? How do you tend to respond? And then there you'll see, you know, what's going on in your your attitude. It's when you, it's not when you have time to think, it's when you don't have time to think. And, and then here's what we do. We do things like we say, you know, we react wrongly and then we're having a conversation about that and we say, we have these little phrases that we use like, well, the Lord knows my heart. Have you ever thought about that? you know so you are critical of someone and you hurt someone's feelings and then that person comes to you as they're biblically mandated to do in Matthew 18 they come to you and they say listen what you said about me hurt my feelings and then you then respond to that by apologizing But then saying, well, you know, I didn't mean it. I mean, the Lord knows my heart. Or you're telling someone else and you're saying, well, they got upset about that and I didn't mean it to be upsetting, but, you know, the Lord knows my heart. Well, yes, the Lord does know your heart. That is true. But how do people know your heart? People know your heart by your conduct. You see, the only way I can know your heart, I can't know your heart. I'm not God. So God does, in fact, know your heart. But the thing is, is that the relational issue that's created is, is that all of us in the room don't have the ability to know anybody's heart. The only thing we can know is conduct. You See, I can, I can discern the situation in your heart based on your conduct. All I can do is examine fruit. That's the only vehicle but it's really the only one I need but it's the only one I have and that's what Jesus did and so if Jesus did it well then certainly that's what we ought to do i mean if you think about for example when Jesus addressed a person or a group of people that had a wrong attitude or a wrong spirit what would he do what did he do when he addressed the pharisees or the sadducées he would say that they condemn themselves by their actions you see, it's their conduct that condemns them. It's their conduct that that exposes the the wrongness of their attitudes. And so, when you know, for example, in Mark chapter twelve, when he's he's uh, just so frustrated with the Pharisees because they're they're basically taking from widows and trying to spiritualize it and make it seem like it's okay. And he and he said that you're it's your attitudes, it's your actions, it's your conduct that is exposing the wrongness of your heart. And it's condemning you. Okay, so if our attitude is exposed in our reactions, not our actions, or not our, our responses, but our reactions. And if our, if our attitudes are uh, oftentimes found in the way that we respond to things that don't go our way. I mean, really, I don't, I'm not going to learn a lot about my attitude or your attitude when things are going well, except for maybe if there's a if an attitude of ungratefulness. But other than that, most of the time, it's in the context of things going counter to the way that we think they ought to go when we're going to find out uh, what's truly going on. So what does all this have to do with Numbers chapter 12? Well, it's a perfect illustration of critical attitude. Numbers chapter 12, uh, Moses is leading the children of Israel uh, towards the Promised Land and they're uh, perilously close to taking this great detour. This is like uh, this chapter preempts this uh, great failure uh, on the people of God where God then says, you know what, 40 years, 40 more years in the wilderness, and he basically, you know, does away with an entire generation. And the problem is because they keep uh, they keep responding with these wrong attitudes over and over and over. And so we don't have time to look at all of them, but we look at one, uh, which is really the most pronounced one. I remember when I was teaching through the book of Numbers on Wednesday night, and we got to this passage, it was very insightful. So let's look at, Mo- at, at Moses and uh, his... Older sister and older brother, Miriam and Aaron. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian or the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, here we have Moses who's leading the people of God. Who has uh, been through, I mean, all sorts of agony. Agony. And he's got his two right-hand people, his brother and his sister, helping him. You know they're there to be his his confidants and his his helpers. They're his most trusted advisors. And you know these are uh, spiritually mature people. I mean, Miriam is a prophetess. I mean, Aaron is. These are wonderful people of God. And yet, suddenly they begin to speak out against Moses. Now that the the verb that's translated "spoke against" is a—it's uh, a word that means to be critical of. They were being critical of Moses, um, mostly behind his back, probably, maybe um, not necessarily trying to hide it from him, but they were being critical to him, not just of each other, but to other people as well. And the the verb tense there is a feminine tense, which would tend to tell us that. The primary uh, offender here of this criticism is Miriam. And so they're speaking out against Moses. And then verse 2. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. He heard what they said. Now, verse 1 says that they're speaking against Moses because of this Wife that he has. You know, he was married to Zipporah, and now he's married to this woman, which would tend to mean that what happened was she died, and so now he's remarried, and so he's marrying this woman, and so we've got this problem where Miriam and Aaron don't approve of this, the nuptials. They don't approve of their new sister-in-law. They're not excited about him uh, marrying this woman for whatever reason they've come up with in their own mind that they have decided they're they're not a big fan of hers well then verse two just completely leaves that aside and now suddenly uh the they're talking about not about her but about the fact that well the lord indeed has he spoken only through moses like what makes moses so special why is not Why the Lord's spoken through us, He's used us, so you can see that really what's at issue here is not His marriage at all, but it's something other. Let's keep reading, then we'll come back. Verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very humble, the Bible says, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Well, that's good to know, and so the Lord wants us to know that about Moses, that he's a very humble man. Verse 4. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out you 3 to the tabernacle of meeting and so they came out. Now, you know, we read that, we read verse 4 and it's just like, okay, well that's what happened, but you have to kind of think about the context of what's going on. They've they've just uh constructed the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where the glory of God dwells. It's very scary. It's very intimidating. Everything has to be exactly right. If you go meddling around with anything uh, in the, at the tabernacle, I mean, you would die instantaneously. I mean, it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty intimidating place. And suddenly God shows up and says, Hey, you, you, and you, meet me at the tent. Uh-oh. And then... Look at what happens in verse 5. I mean, that's bad. So what? I don't know what was going on. I don't know what they were doing. But I can tell you this. When that happened, it was, yes, sir. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. Like you imagine, you're walking up to the tabernacle. Now, you don't really know what God's upset about because he hasn't said yet. Because he knows everything. So they're probably thinking, like, could it, it could be this or this. or that. I mean, it could be a lot of things. I mean, let's face it. They're human. So they're walking up to the tabernacle, and there in the doorway is this cloud. Like this smoke. Just representing the presence of God. And he called to Aaron and to Miriam, and they both went forward. So he apparently wanted Moses to hear what he was about to say. But what he's about to say, he had to say to just the two of them. So he calls them forward. They go forward. And he said, now hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, then I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful. In all my house, I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God has taken great personal offense to the actions of Aaron and Miriam. And he is delineating to them what they already obviously know. But he is just reiterating the reality that this is my guide, which you know. And I am the one that choose whom... Remember their complaint in verse 2 was about, does he only speak through Moses? So God is addressing their complaint, which he heard because he hears everything. And so he says to them... So you have concerns about who and how and when I talk. And so let me set you straight about that. I speak to Moses directly because he's my guy. Because I've chosen him. And because that's what I've decided to do. And you, of all people, ought to know better than to speak against, to grumble against, to criticize my guy. So the Bible says in verse 9, the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and then God departed. As if it was just going to be a little tongue lashing. They get a little spanking and then everything moves on. But when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous. Not just a little leprosy, but white as snow, covered in leprosy. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Now there's a shocking turn of events. I don't know. I wasn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us. I'm trying to picture the scene in my mind. I'm certain that when Aaron turned and saw her leprous, I guarantee you the first thing he did was look down at himself. That's what I would have done. He realized he wasn't leprous. He looked back at her, and he thought, oh, Goodness! In fact, he says that in verse 11. And Aaron said to Moses, "Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly, in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not be shamed for seven days? That's a question, a reference back to the Old Testament Levitical law. Let her be shut up out of the camp for seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. And so what God is saying is that even if uh, she had... Uh, humiliated or embarrassed her own father, the penalty would be that she would be excommunicated for seven days, which is the same thing that you would do with someone who is leprous. They would need to get away because you need to... That's why there's leper colonies, because it's contagious. And so send her away, shut her up. What she needs is to be shut up, but uh, God means in a different way, shut her up out of here, get rid of her for seven days, and then afterwards... Give her seven days to sit around and look at her skin rotting off and think about what she's done. And then we'll, uh, then she can be received again. Verse 15, so Miriam was shut up out of the camp for seven days and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. And afterwards the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now, that's kind of a crazy story. It's kind of, you know, like you're going, okay. But let's just think about some things about this. It's very instructive about criticism and attitude. The first thing I want you to see is that what, here's the problem. The problem is I think the reason why this seems so radical is because I think that most of you listening to this think, God, you don't admit this, but you're thinking, God, you're, you're overreacting a little bit. And I want to show you why God's not overreacting. I want you to notice what it says in verse 11. Aaron said to Moses, Please do not lay this Sin. sin on us, for which we have done foolishly, in which we have sinned. I want to tell you something about criticism it's not a bad habit. It's not a character flaw. It's a sin. A critical attitude is sinful. And one of the reasons why it's so damaging and why it breaks so many people's fellowship with God is because they overlook it because we just think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not, you know, we don't think of it as Uh, as a sin against God. But this clearly teaches that it is a sin and that God is not overreacting. I'm willing to bet you that had I read this story and in this story it said that Miriam had murdered someone, or someone had had an adulterous affair with someone, or someone had, you know, killed someone's child, no one would have thought, well, God's overreacting. But the fact that it's criticism in our culture and our mindset seems like, wow, God, you're, you're kind of getting bent out of shape about nothing. But it's clearly a big deal to God. I mean, that's just the first thing you got to wrap your head around. It's sin. And if it's sin, then that then instructs us in certain ways about how it will affect us. If it's sin, well, then it's going to affect our fellowship with God. Because sin affects our fellowship with God. We know that. You know that. Sin, listen, when Miriam and Aaron sin, they're part of God's people. Their sin doesn't make them, doesn't remove them from the fold. It doesn't make them no longer part of God's people any more than when you sin as a believer, you lose your salvation. That's not how it works. If once you are part of God's family, you are always eternally and forever part of God's family. Praise the Lord. That can never change. But when you sin, it breaks fellowship with God. And so their fellowship is broken with God because of their sinfulness. God then chastens them. He brings ramifications because of their sinfulness, which is exactly what happens to you and to me when we have a critical attitude, when we have a negative attitude, when we have an attitude of ungratefulness, when our attitude is wrong. You see, it seems like It seems like a small thing. But I just want you to just stop and realize something. When you speak critically about someone, it is a grievous sin against a person created in the image of God for whom he slaughtered his son. You are not the judge... You are in no position to be critic. But we do it anyway because we feel like we have the information we need. We feel like we have enough understanding on the subject to come to our own sort of foregone conclusions, if you will, or whatever the case may be. You know, if you think about criticism. Criticism is forming conclusions based on perceptions that have no purpose for good. You see, when you criticize someone or when I criticize someone, what we're doing is we are determining that we are Know, we're putting ourselves in a position of power and authority to know what the problem is, what's wrong, whatever, or what ought to be that's not. So we're perceiving because what we really don't know because it doesn't matter how informed you are about it, you're no one died to make you God or me God. So what it is is we've predetermined in our head. That this is the problem. We form conclusions about that, and there's no. And understand the critical element to this: there's no intention for good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a perception, and there's nothing wrong with forming an educated conclusion. The problem is, is that when you do those things, and you have no intention for good. You have now jumped off the cliff of criticism, and you have committed a heinous sin against God. So let's just make sure we're clear about what I'm talking about. Let's suppose that there's, you know, some situation, and, you know, you come to me, or you come to your... Sunday school teacher, or whatever the case may be, and you say, which happens all the time, somebody comes and they say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. You know, there's a situation. I'm not really sure how to handle it. Here's what I think's going on. I don't really know, but I'm concerned about it, and I want to help. And And sometimes that person's asking me, Am I? this is what I'm thinking, am I on the right track? Or they're asking me, well, what do you think? Or they're thinking, well, what should I do? Or, and their intention is, they're coming to me as a person who's in a position to help the person that they're concerned about, and therefore, by coming to me and saying what they're saying to me, they're, they're doing absolutely nothing wrong. They're doing what God would have them to do. But when you say to someone something critical about someone else who is in no position to do anything to remedy the problem, and you, frankly, don't care anything about remedying the problem. You're simply just purveying your perception and conclusion about what the problem is. Well, guess what? I'm relatively certain... That you don't instantaneously come down with leprous white as snow. But as a new covenant believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you grieve the heart of God and you break fellowship with Him. And I've really just had a burden in my heart this week thinking about People. So, I mean, I know that there are some of you, when I say you, I don't mean necessarily you in this room, but you as in us in this big family, who have had critical attitudes for decades. And I just think about the ramifications of that. Just always finding fault in other people. Always uh, trying to break down, see the the bad, the negative. Criticism is a sin, and it breaks your fellowship with God. I want you to notice, uh, again in verse 11, Aaron turns and says to Moses. Now, now, why doesn't Aaron pray for Miriam? Why does he need Moses? Because he's broken fellowship with God. There's a principle there that's teaching you that Aaron whether he consciously or subconsciously the scriptures teaching us that he needs a mediator because he if there's sin barricading him from God You see you and I have a mediator that sits at the right hand of the throne of God all the time the Lord Jesus Christ well Aaron is illustrating to us that he's a sin and so he turns to one who hasn't sinned to mediate on his behalf I mean, there's an amazing spiritual principle there illustrating the the break in fellowship with God. But it's not just that. What else does it do? Criticism breaks relationship with other people. It breaks fellowship with God, but it breaks relationship with others. You know, when you have a critical attitude... You're basically a people repellent. What happens is, is you're going to repel everyone in your life except for other people who share your affinity for criticism. I mean, it astonishes me that people will complain. Now, Now, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, but complain that they have no friends. Now just think about that for a second. I wonder why that is. Why is it that you're surrounded with people and yet you can't seem to form any deep, abiding, long-lasting relationships. Why is it? Is it not true that in every situation like that, the person is forever pointing outward? What is wrong with everybody else? Why do I not have relationships in my life? Well, I don't know, but the first step would maybe be to ask yourself, why are you complaining? Do you think that complaining is somehow going to yield relationships? Because I'm going to tell you something. Complaining is in the same category as nagging. It will never get you where you want to go. You may complain your way into some short-term You know, guilt driven solution, but it's gonna, that person's gonna flee just as fast as they can. Nagging, you might be able to get somebody, not me, but you might be able to get somebody to do something that you want them to do by nagging them, but trust me, it'll be short lived and they will vacate the premises as fast as possible. They'll avoid you like the plague. I mean, A critical attitude is going to be devastating on your interpersonal relationships because it it makes it almost impossible for anyone to have any sort of meaningful relationship with you because it just breaks down to this criticism and even subconsciously without even you know you you don't even have to have an astute trained mind to know in your mind and in your heart that as soon as you go out the door the criticism you're listening to is going to be levied against you you know that I mean it never ceases to amaze me that when someone wants to share a juicy piece of gossip with me which is rare I will admit you know it usually doesn't go so well but when they do I wonder, like, do they not know? I mean, everyone who gossips, believe me, the rest of the world knows who you are. It's not a secret. We all know where the loose lips are. I mean, because you tell us things. And so we know that you can't be trusted. And if you're critical, then we know that you're going to be critical of us. Because you're critical of everything. Why? Because criticism is a symptom. It's a symptom. Verse 1, they're criticizing Moses because of his wife. We don't hear another word about it. Now, here's the thing. Understand... The reason I know that it's a symptom is because, well, I know that. The reason I know this passage is teaching that is because, understand, God knows everything. He's the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of everyone's heart. So I'm not saying that they haven't clued us into what the real problem is. God clues us in. In other words, if you want to know what's really going on, all you have to do is listen to how God responds to them, and that will tell you what the problem is because he responds directly to the heart. So God shows up on the scene and says, listen, what is this business about you being all tangled up about Moses and me speaking through him? You see, God doesn't say anything about his wife. You know why? Because that's not what they were mad about. Well, here's the deal. When someone has a critical attitude, when someone criticizes you or when you criticize someone, your problem is not them. It's just a symptom. The criticism is masking a deeper issue. That's where the criticism is coming from. These two are criticizing Moses because they're jealous. They're envious of his position with God. And so the fact that he's gotten married makes them is just whatever they can use to criticize him. But what they're really mad about is that God speaks through Moses. That's what they're mad about. They envy him. They're envious of his authority. They're envious of his position with God. They're envious of his relationship with God. That's the problem. That's what God addresses. If you or you know someone who has a critical attitude, their problem is not with who they're criticizing. The criticism is merely a symptom of what's broken on the inside. It never addresses the problem. A person with a critical attitude is a person who's hurt, a person who's bitter, a person who's got a root of bitterness or unforgiveness in them. And so something's broken inside of them, and they're criticizing everyone or everything around them because of what's broken inside. A person who's critical is a person who's covetous, jealous, envious. They don't have the things they think they're justly due, and therefore they criticize everyone else. The criticism is just a mechanism to break everyone else down to the level at which they don't seem or feel so broken. That the fertilizer of criticism is insecurity. And so when a person is critical, they're insecure. So you don't listen to all the things that they're criticizing and try to figure out Has anyone, I mean, Here's a little simple procedure in, you know, pastoring 101. Sometimes, you know, I'm playing badminton with all the criticism. I'm hitting the birdies every which way I can. So someone comes along and they're critical of some situation or some circumstance. So what do I do? I remedy the situation. And guess what? Two days later, they're critical of something else. You see, if you run around trying to fix the thing that someone's being critical about, you are going to run around like the Tasmanian devil. You're never going to get anywhere. Because all that is is just some manifestation of what's broken inside running around fixing it. It's not about the thing. It's the person who writes uh, the nasty letter, doesn't sign it, and then sends it to me or drops it in the offering plate. Now, now think about this. Do you think that they're actually sitting there thinking to themselves, now this is going to solve the problem? Of course not. If they actually thought it was a if they actually wanted a solution, they'd come and talk to me. It's not about that. It's just expressing something that's broken inside. It has absolutely nothing to do with whatever it is, the situation that's at hand. You see, and so when we're, you we gotta be, you gotta look at this passage and you gotta look at Aaron and Miriam and you gotta say to yourself, hey, there's some hard truths in here. These are not novices. These are spiritually mature people. Don't think that, well, you know, I mean, I've been saved a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very grounded in the Word. I'm very, you know, I've got a... Uh, okay. But you don't think a spirit of... Uh, an attitude of criticism can't get you? It got a prophetess who's... Words are recorded in Scripture in multiple places. Aaron is not just some fleeting person in the Bible. It got them. It can get you and it can get me. We have to be careful. We have to guard our hearts against it. We have to realize that when we find ourselves getting critical, it's a symptom of something else that's wrong. Something else that's wrong. You see, the thing about it is is that there is constructive criticism. But we all know the difference, don't we? Between criticism for the sake of criticism, tearing someone down, and criticism for the sake of helping someone. Yes, because the intent for good is always there. When you mean to resolve a problem, But if you only want to hurt, if you only want to wound, then what you do is you just say whatever you want to say when the person's not around or don't take responsibility for it, and then you can just leave your words hanging out there. And the sad thing about it is is that the critical attitude, that, that that person somehow is under the delusion that they're skating by. You see... When Miriam and Aaron were talking, you know what they thought? They thought that they were having a conversation between the two of them. Or that they were saying certain things to certain people who could be trusted. In other words, the idea that there would be spiritual ramifications never crossed their mind. Which is why they panic, not when God calls them to meet with them. Not when God shows up in the doorway to the tabernacle as a pillar of smoke, because they're still, they don't really know what's fixing to happen. But when God lowers the boom on them, they freak out. Oh my goodness. We, we have wrongly done this. We have, we have you see, because. When we're, you got to understand this. When you're critical and you think that it's okay to say something critical about someone who will never hear what you're saying. That you are being critical to someone who is in confidence. And so it's okay because they'll never repeat what you're saying. God hears that. This is what this passage is telling you. The Lord Almighty knows what you're saying. You've got to be careful. The fertilizer of criticism is insecurity. And then I guess the obvious and final truth is that criticism, it has immense power. It has immense power to wound, immense power to hurt. I think that if we're going to talk about adjusting our attitude, it would be it would be incomplete if we didn't just stop and flip the coin on the other side for a moment and just take a minute and think seriously about those maybe in this room, those of you that you may know and love deeply and closely who grew up in a home where there was rampant, repetitive criticism and you realize how that's shaped their lives. That you, you, you're in the presence of criticism. You grow up in a home where you're criticized all the time. And it profoundly affects you. Profoundly affects you. And yes, in Christ you are a new creation. But your flesh still has tendencies. And the tendencies of your flesh are going to be to revert back to not the things that my flesh wants to revert back to. But the things that were shaped and molded for evil in you. And so if you were grown up always being told that you were not good enough or that you were stupid or that you were worthless. Or that, or that there was a, it was like a, 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 a game to run other people down. then you know the power of criticism. And you know the damaging effects of criticism. And you've caught yourself time and time again spewing out words to your children in reaction that you wish you could take back that you can't. You know, I think we should all ask ourselves hard questions. We should say, you know, am I a critical person? Am I a negative person? Am I quick to find fault in other people? Do I jump to judgment? Do I, do I think first well of someone? This is one of the things we work very hard at around here. That we want to be a church that, that always thinks well of one another first. We don't ever want to be a place where we would just think, Oh my goodness, someone has failed us or disappointed us or hurt us or wounded us. When it appears that that might be the case, it should always be in our heart that, you know, there must be some piece of this equation that I'm missing because it's my family member. It's my brother. It's my sister. Should be very, very, very cautious. If you think God took what was spoken about Moses personally, what do you think that he feels when you speak against one who is a co heir with Christ? Is your spiritual life dry and barren? Do you sometimes wonder why your relationship with God is not vibrant the way you wish it was? Maybe it's because you've been overlooking something that you think is such a small, insignificant problem, but it's actually a huge and glaring spiritual issue. Of unrepentant, continual sin. Yes, our attitude has the power to break us. To break our fellowship with God. What if you are the recipient of criticism? I can't end without... Helping you. What do you do when you are the one who's being criticized? What does Scripture teach us about that person? Well, the most vivid and amazing passages of Scripture that have to do with a person being criticized other than the Lord Jesus Himself would be the perils of David, a man after God's own heart, he was relentlessly scrutinized. He was relentlessly persecuted and trailed by his enemies and his adversaries. He was constantly and forever under attack. And so you simply open the book of Psalms and begin to read some of David's words. And I, I think that one of the most succinct places would be in Psalm 141. Where David says in verse 8, as he is under extraordinary persecution from those whom he calls wicked who are against him. And he says, But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps. Of the workers of iniquity. What you should do and what I should do is we should do what David did. When we are criticized, we should ask ourselves is there something about this criticism that maybe could be instructive to me? I mean, oftentimes it may be handled in the wrong way, it may be said uh, in a wrong spirit, but I always ask myself, is there something for me to learn in this? I don't want to be a person who, you know, you, you don't want to be someone who is a, uh, an emotional eggshell. But ultimately, you want to take your refuge in the Lord. So I think it would be prudent and wise for us as people of God. To be sensitive to this issue about our attitude. Whether it be negativity or criticism or ingratitude or whatever it is. Be sensitive to it. And first and foremost, be sensitive to your own heart. And secondly, be use what you've heard tonight in helping and understanding and praying for those who might be around you who struggle in this way. And realize that. There's deep abiding spiritual ramifications to these issues that we oftentimes think are small. Let's stand and bow our heads and we'll just respond to the Lord for a few moments. Father, I want to thank you for your word and God for the instruction that you've granted us, Lord. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord God, as we uh, just examine our own hearts and think about our own attitudes, Lord. I I pray for those in this room who may have grown up in an environment of, of criticism or negativity or, uh, Lord, just been, uh, from an early age, just subjected to a constant repetition of uh, wrong spirit. And, Father, I, I want to pray for them, to let them know, Lord, that Uh, on the authority of your word that father god they are a new creation in you and that when they come to christ when they come to faith in you lord that you have uh, blotted all of that out and given them everything that they need to live in faith and godliness and i thank you for that father lord i pray that we would all examine our hearts and take responsibility for our attitudes and lord that we would Recognize that it's not uh, only, God, the way that we respond and react to those closest to us, but Lord, in all of our human relationships with one another, Father God, that we are your ambassador and that you take very seriously the words that we speak. And Father, thank you. Thank you for being our mediator. Thank you that even now, as we were reminded this morning, that we as your children can come to you, confess our sin, and find ourselves cleansed of all unrighteousness because you are faithful and you are just. And Lord, we're grateful for that. And so, Lord, maybe for some it might be omission and not commission. It might just be something that up until this point in their life they've just simply thought was a character flaw or the way that they are. I'm not sure, Lord, but You are. But all I know is, God, that we need You. And that, Father God, what's most important to me is that the people that You have placed here in this fellowship would have a deep, abiding, rewarding, wonderful, fruitful relationship with You, Father God. And in order to do that, Lord, we need to have right right attitude. So we thank You for helping us tonight. And we pray, God, that in these moments, as we just pause, Father God, that you'd speak into our hearts.